0: going to ask you to open your Bibles this morning to a couple of different passages of Scripture. Um, I'm going to try something which I almost always regret doing when I try it, but I'm going to try to talk about two different things this morning, Um, see if we can make it work. Um, The first is Lamentations chapter 3, Lamentations chapter 3, and if you're having a hard time finding that, I would direct you to the table of contents. It's a marvelous tool in our Bibles, the table of contents, much neglected, right? So Lamentations chapter 3, and then 1 John chapter 4. Again, if you need help finding that, don't be ashamed, go to the table of contents. If you're using your phone to find scripture, and you can't find it, I don't know what help I can give you. This, of course, is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and by... Happy coincidence. It's also the beginning of Hanukkah. Uh, the two holidays don't actually have a direct connection, but there is a connection and we'll talk about that. Uh, our focus this morning, because it is the fourth Sunday of Advent, is love, and that will be the theme that we speak to. Um, but I do want to first talk just a little bit a little bit about Hanukkah and then speak to the subject of love, especially as it is seen in the Christmas narrative, and then finally at the end we'll see if we can connect those two a little bit. So our two scriptures this morning, Lamentations chapter 3, a scripture many of you have heard me refer to before, and I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version this morning. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And then first John, chapter four, verse 10. "In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Father, we thank you for your presence this morning. Father, we thank you for what these candles represent, the anticipation of our celebration of the birth of your son. Your sending your son into our broken and fallen world to redeem us, Father, from the awful power of sin. Promise us new life. Father, we thank you for that, and we thank you for your word, and ask, Father, as we look to it this morning, we would simply hear from you. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, the gift of your deliverance, your presence, and your power in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's talk just a little bit about Hanukkah. How many of you didn't know or did know it was Hanukkah? We'll make it a positive thing. It was Hanukkah. Um, how many really don't have any idea what Hanukkah is about? You know, occurs this time of year, but um, I'm going to just talk about it a little bit in case, case you don't. Uh, it's, it's it's the feast of dedication. That's what the word Hanukkah means. It's the rededication of the temple in 166 BC. Um, it's something that, um, well, frankly, we we owe like a great many things to the uh, the efforts of Alexander the Great. You know, he rolled across the Middle Eastern world in 300 BC, and um, was really good at conquering stuff, but kind of lousy at leaving anything behind that was worth talking about. He left the language behind, which is why we have the New Testament in Greek. But he didn't leave much else. Uh, When he died, what was his empire was quickly divided up among his four generals, and Israel happened to fall right on the border of two of those little mini-kingdoms, and of course, as kingdoms often do, they immediately fell into dispute. And Israel was stuck in the middle. And that kind of lays the groundwork, that fighting between these Syrian Greek, Egyptian Greek, Macedonian Greek empires or small kingdoms fighting one another. That was the the chaos that set the groundwork for Hanukkah. And what the the festival actually celebrates is as a byproduct of that chaos that Alexander left in his wake, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. Right? The, the, the city was virtually left in ruins. The temple was defiled. Everything to humiliate the Jewish people that could be done was done to the point that a pig was brought into the temple and sacrificed on the altar. The temple was completely defiled. Well, at that point, the Jewish people had had enough and led first by a priest by the name of Matthias, they revolted. And he didn't live to see the end of it, but his sons, he had four sons, who are often referred to by the name Maccabees. You'll see that name a lot, Maccabees. That's actually not their name. Uh, The word Maccabee is a word that means hammer. So they were the four sons known as the Hammers. You can kind of get an idea what their uh, personality was like by that. And they were the ones that successfully led the revolt that drove these Greek, Macedonian, Syrian pagans out of Jerusalem, and they rededicated the temple. They cleaned it up, they restored the priesthood, and they went about restoring all the different functions of the temple. When they got to relighting the the lamp, the menorah, that seven-branched menorah, they discovered they had a problem. They only had enough oil for one night. And there's a very special process they have to go through to create the oil for the lamp. Now, if you've ever stood in a grocery store and you've looked at the different grades of olive oil, here's, here's the skinny on that. It's really pretty simple. The less pressure, heat, and damage that's done to the olive, assuming you had a quality olive to begin with, but the less pressure, the less heat, and the less actual physical damage done to the olive, the better the oil. So when you're paying. A really high price for that really good light-colored oil, it's because very little pressure, very little damage, and very little heat. It's just a gentle bruising, which then allows the best oil to drip out very, very slowly. Well, because of that, and because of the process that had to be followed to create the oil for the lamp, it would take eight days, or seven or eight days, to produce the oil to put in the lamp. Well, they only had one day's worth of oil, and it's going to take them seven days to get any more and the decision was made let's go ahead and light the seven branched candelabra the menorah if you will and it burned for eight days without going out the oil was miraculously multiplied and that is what hanukkah celebrates it celebrates the successful defeat of a much greater much more powerful army at the hands of a, just a handful of Jews. It celebrates the rededication of the temple and the miracle of the oil being multiplied to provide for the lamp. Now, you may notice if you, if you see the, the lamp used in the homes during Hanukkah, it is not a seven branched or a seven candle. It actually has eight. There's actually nine, right? Four on each side, one in the middle, to, to commemorate the eight days that the oil lasted. So it's not a feast you will see referred to in the Old Testament because all of these events occur at least 200 years after the Old Testament has been written. It's not an Old Testament feast. You won't see it written there. But it is a feast the Jewish people have kept since then to celebrate God's miraculous deliverance and God's miraculous power. It's a great festival, um, one that is celebrated with things like the dreidel, Little kids' toy, and they, they learn different lessons, and they win uh, little gold-covered cu- chocolates to play with. There are some more. Um, there are some celebrations with that that those of us that are a little older can maybe you know appreciate it a little more, like potato pancakes fried in oil. That's the key. They're fried in oil. You see how that ties in. Or how about this one? Probably the best one of all. Who doesn't like jelly donuts? Jelly donuts, if you don't normally indulge in those, you can. Um, and as far as the potato pancakes go, I know they're kind of inconvenient to make, but um, if you're a big fan of french fries, same thing, right? Indulge in some french fries when you might not normally do it. The cool thing about Hanukkah is it was the, it's the only Jewish festival that fasting has no place in, Right? My kind of festival, right? Yeah, it's all a celebration. It's a celebration of God's goodness and it's a celebration of light. Well, does that connect to the New Testament? As a matter of fact, it does. In John chapter 10, verses 22 and 23, we read that at the time of the feast of dedication, at the time it took place in Jerusalem, it was winter and Jesus is walking in the temple. So, John chapter 10 very clearly puts Jesus in Jerusalem during this festival. And what's significant about that, if you go back to John chapters 8 and 9, that's a long block of Jesus' interaction with the Jews that all takes place in Jerusalem. So it's not at all a stretch to suggest that the discussion that started back in chapter 8 and chapter 9 continues into chapter 10. And in 8 and 9 is where Jesus makes the statement. He says it twice. I am the light of the world. Not just light but the light. and If you've been with us long, you know that that word the means absolutely unique, distinct, and complete. I am the distinct and complete light of the world. Jesus makes that statement in direct reference to, I would suggest, the feast that the Jews were celebrating, as if to say, you want to talk about light? You're talking to him. Remember we have said over the, over the four Sundays, we talked about hope. We said hope has a name. It's Jesus. We talked about peace. We said peace has a name. Jesus. Talked about joy. Joy has a name. It's Jesus. Light has a name. It's Jesus. It's all about him. So we find that this, this Old Testament-ish Jewish people living under the law festival actually does show up in the New Testament. And, and one could discuss whether Jesus was actively celebrating it or if he was just simply using the occasion to show something about himself. Um, the impression I have of our Lord as when I read scripture is that he wasn't bashful about having a good time with his followers. He enjoyed being around his followers and celebrating with them. I suggest, you can disagree if you want, that he participated fully in all that there was to celebrate, remembering God's goodness. You know, we talk a lot about the difference between the Old Testament and the New, uh, and there are some differences. They're not absolute, but there are some differences. Uh, The Old Testament is a covenant of law. New Testament's a covenant of grace. Old Testament is a covenant of works. The New Testament is a covenant of faith. One is a tutor to lead us to the other, tutor to lead us to Christ. That's Galatians chapter 3. In one God is transcendent. He is essentially above. That great um, blessing that, that we hold, we cherish so much. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you peace. Listen to those words carefully and notice the proximity of the one being blessed to the one who's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you peace. Compare that, if you will, to what we read in John chapter 14, the word of our Lord who said, That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and he will abide in you. That is a truth the Old Testament never touches. Oh, there are exceptional cases but the God who spoke the worlds into order, coming to abide in his people, that's different. So there are some profound differences. But then there are some things that are not different at all. There are some things that are very, very consistent. Things like God's holiness. His holiness is written all across the Old Testament. But then we come all the way to the end of the New Testament, Revelation 4.8, we read of the angels who cry out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Very end of the Old Testament. New Testament sounds an awful lot like the Old to me. God's righteousness does not change. His righteousness is all over the Old Testament. And then we read in Romans chapter 3, verses 21-22. Now, Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There is no distinction. His righteousness, consistent. You go on down the list, the attributes of God again and again and again. His mercy, his wisdom, his knowledge, his power. The fact that he is infinite and eternal. It's consistent from one To the other. But of all the attributes we could list that are consistent from Old Testament to to New, all of the things about God that are consistent, I would suggest His love stands out above all. His love stands out above all. Of course, we know His love described in the Old Testament is described in Hebrew. I don't speak Hebrew or read it or have much comprehension of it but I know some people that do. And they tell me some things. One of the things they tell me is that the languages are very different in their nature. Greek is a very specific language. That's one of the reasons it works so well in the New Testament. It's very, very specific. If I look at one of my children, and and I say, Sudo, I see you. They know exactly what it means. They say that in English, I see you. That can mean any number of things, right? But I say to one of my students, they know exactly what I mean. If I say, I saw you, they know what that means. It's very specific, right down to the last detail, right? It's a language that is powerful in its specificity. And for example, to try to um, express any idea Or any part of this vast word we have in English, love, Greek has a multiplicity of languages, depending, of words rather, depending on which specific facet of love you're talking about, right? Hebrew, I'm told by those who know it, is, is like the opposite of that. Hebrew is like two big arms that grab a whole bunch of ideas and group them together and have one word for them. So the word that is used by Jeremiah, the steadfast love of the Lord, never ceases. Beautiful word. The word is hesed. There's like 13 words in the King James translation alone that attempt to translate that one Hebrew word. It's this big, huge concept that pulls together Everything that expresses God's good intention for his people, his compassion, his care, his involvement, his investment in his people, how he watches over everything involved in God's care for his people is wrapped up in that one powerful word, that deep abiding concern and compassion, hesed. And I love the way it's used there. In Lamentations, chapter three, Lamentations, of course, was written by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived in a lousy time. It was bad. I mean, if I know a lot of us, and I would include myself in that, we we look at our country and we're worried because we see a, a spiritual and cultural decline in our country, and that's concerning, very concerning. Well, if you're of that persuasion, that ilk, just let your imagination go. And imagine, this is not a healthy exercise as a rule, but just for our purposes this morning, let your imagination go and imagine just how bad it could get. Let yourself imagine just how bad things could get. That's the world Jeremiah lived in. It was bad. And Jeremiah... I mean, he dealt with gross sin. He dealt with reforms that were intended to correct and had failed miserably. Cities destroyed, people destroyed. The temple was in ruins. It was a mess. And Jeremiah wasn't happy about it. And I really one thing I, reason I like this particular prophet is he's a guy that speaks his mind and didn't pull punches, regardless of who he was talking to. And so in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 10, we read the prophet saying this, Ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying you will have peace, whereas a sword touches the throat. Did I just read the prophet calling God a liar? Yeah. That's Jeremiah. Lord, you deceived this people. I don't know if Jeremiah had any friends left at that point. But if he did, they probably all took a couple steps back. Like, I'm just going to, you know, it's going to get real warm over there pretty quick and I don't want to be too close, right? Then in chapter 20, he makes it a little more personal. Remember, this is the guy that had that incredible calling at the beginning of Jeremiah, before you were born, I knew you, before you were formed in the womb. Like you, he got this incredible call to the office of a prophet. And now he says this, God, you've deceived me and I was deceived. You overcame me and you prevailed. i become a laughingstock all day long. Everybody mocks me. He's upset. And now for the second time, he calls God a liar. God, you said I was going to have this powerful ministry and I'm getting mocked every day. And why is he being mocked? Well, read on. For every time I speak, I cry aloud, I proclaim violence and destruction, because for me the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. Any friends that were left got even farther away. What a magnificent testimony to the grace of God. Now, I'm not suggesting that you get in the habit of telling God off let alone calling him a liar. But here we have the prophet of God flat out doing it. And God's mercy and his grace is so complete. Isn't it good to know that we serve a God who is so big he can handle us even when we're in a place like this? Literally vomiting our angst and our disappointment and our fear right in front of him, right in his lap. This is the man who writes the book of limitations. This is where it comes to. After all this, he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. In the midst of everything he saw, everything he felt inside, he could say his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Even after he's come to the place that he would say these kinds of things to God, yet he reminds himself first and foremost that his God is absolutely faithful and his love never comes to an end. His love cannot come to an end. For all of his angst, all of his anger, all of his disappointment, all of his confusion, you can add to that list wherever you're at, right? Wherever you've been. For all of that, he understood the love of God with the all-encompassing hesed of God was not only present in the worst of circumstances, it was big enough to hold him at his worst. Love of God, all-encompassing. That's the love of God in the Old Testament. Pretty incredible. Then there's the love of God in the New Testament. 1 John 4.10, we already read it. In this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us, sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That word atoning sacrifice is translated in various ways. Propitiation, I mean, who used that word this week? Um, expiation, I don't think I've ever used that word. It's pretty much summed up this way. I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. The atoning sacrifice for my sin. See, there's common ground. This is where the two covenants meet. This is where there's harmony between the hesed of God, that all-encompassing love that extends mercy and grace and provides and cares and overlooks a sin. Agape, the love that expresses itself in compassion and care, motivated God to give his most treasured gift to us. Not that we love God in point of fact, we did not. We start off the same place Jeremiah was at his worst. Agape is a care and a concern for the welfare and interest of others. It drives one to act, even contrary to one's own interests, for the interest of another. It acts out of a great desire for their welfare. We did not have that for God, but he had it for us. And out of that love, he loved us. It's a 180 degree opposite course of action. All of our actions expressed anything but love. His action only express love. Everything in the book, Old Testament and New, points to a God who loves his creation, loves us, who acts daily on our behalf, and in response acts to our greatest need, sending his greatest gift. Christmas seems to highlight wherever we're at. Have you ever noticed that? Like if we're doing really good, like the family's good, the health is good, the finances are good, everything's good, Christmas is great. And if people are sick and the finances are lousy and the problem in Christmas is horrible. seems to be like Amplify wherever we're at. Which I think is good because it makes, especially when we're not in a good place, it makes room for us to let his love and the light of his love shine through. And that's why I think these two holidays work so well together. Light serves to express his love. Pastor Joyce and I were talking about this whole idea of how light in the darkness expresses our need, or darkness expresses our need, and light in darkness expresses God's love. And she talked about, you know, getting up at night to use the restroom in this room, and you bump, sub your toe, all that kind of stuff. My thought immediately went to that exquisite moment last winter when everything went dark, right? The power just went Out. And I, I probably did what most, you know, guys do. I look out the window to see if we're the only ones, you know. And to see not just our neighborhood. It was like black everywhere. I felt like we'd been bombed back into the Stone Age. That was my first thought. Now I know how the cavemen felt looking out of their cave. Only at least maybe they had a fire or something going. Absolute Darkness. And then the confusion and the fear and the disorientation and all of that starts to come in, because you have absolutely no bearings at all. And frankly, you don't know what to do other than you know, get back in bed <laughs> and pray for the dawn. Darkness amplifies our weakness, our failures, our needs. He is the light. And so I think especially this morning for those that are maybe at a port, a port where Christmas is kind of a struggle this year, um, is a choice we make. To make the light of who He is break in. Say, Lord, I need a gift from you this Christmas. I need a Christmas gift from you this morning. I need the light of your presence, your compassion, and your love. To break in. Light of the world, you stepped out into darkness. He stepped from the light of eternity into the darkness of his mother's womb. Other than his conception, there is nothing different than any other human birth. I have no reason to believe that Jesus suddenly appeared, you know, fully formed in Mary's womb. I mean, that's, there's a whole host of reasons we can't go there. No. His development was the same as any other human fetus out of light into darkness. Which, if my understanding of the development of a human fetus meant at that moment, he didn't even have eyes, time had to pass. The natural process of development had depressed. He did that. Light of the world, you stepped out into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see. Beauty that made this heart adore you all for love's sake became poor. No eyes. Father, I thank you for your word this morning, Lord, as we're about all the good stuff of Christmas, Lord, what a powerful, powerful thing it is, Lord, to contemplate the light of eternity breaking into our darkness, Lord. But Father, if we pause and we think just for a moment about how deeply into our darkness your Son came, I think, Father, that will cause our appreciation of your love to multiply. And then a greater appreciation of your love, we can have a greater confidence as we follow you, so that when we have those really hard times, and they do come, Lord, when we have those hard times, we will know and we will be able to say, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.